Hello everyone, I am Chris Himes, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next installment of Here to Help. This is our look at how Indeed has been navigating the global impact of COVID-19. Today is November 2nd. We are on day 244 of Global Work From Home. At Indeed, as you all know, our mission is to help people get jobs, and this is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us up at night. And with more than 250 million job seekers around the world, searching for jobs on Indeed every month, we have a unique view into the world of work. What are employers looking for? What are job seekers looking for? The answers to these questions change constantly, and not surprisingly, the past eight months have been especially illuminating. And here at Indeed, we have a group of economists who utilize our data, along with external data, to help make sense of these changes, and we call this group the Hiring Lab. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Pavel Adrian, who is an economist and a head of EMEA research for the Indeed Hiring Lab, uh, ordinarily based in London. Pavel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So let's start where we always start with these discussions, which is a quick check-in. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, I think these are obviously very difficult times, uh, and especially here in Europe, um, they're uh, very difficult because we're heading into a wave of uh, lockdowns uh, once again. Uh, but at a professional level, it's a very exciting time to be an economist. Um, as we all know, there's a lot happening in the economy right now, a lot happening in uh, society as a whole. Um, there's high demand for economic analysis that uh, my team and I uh, provide. And um, it feels good to be doing something that uh, matters um, in these uh, challenging times. Um, I'm also really grateful uh, for the chance the pandemic gave me to work remotely and spend more time uh, with family um, and also to spend some time in Spain, uh, where my husband is from, and to support our family there. Um, and that experience really helped me also see firsthand how the pandemic uh, is having a different impact in different countries. Uh, and that's been really helpful for my job as a European economist as well. So you are the head of research for Europe and also Australia at the Indeed Hiring Lab. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the Hiring Lab does and what your role there is? Uh, sure. Uh, the Hiring Lab is a team of economists and other researchers, um, and we study uh, big trends in the job market. Um, that uh, helps people both inside Indeed and outside Indeed understand uh, what's happening, uh, which is especially important uh, when things are changing as quickly as they are now. Uh, so we ask questions like uh, how the labor market is performing um, as we enter the second wave of the pandemic, uh, which sectors are hiring and which ones aren't, and why, what are some of the economic drivers of that, um, and how are job seekers reacting to all these changes. Um, I would say that one of the most exciting things about our work is our access to um, data on the activity of employers and job seekers on Indeed's platform, where we see almost in real time how some of these trends are developing. Um, and that gives us uh, information about what's happening in the jobs market weeks or sometimes even months before uh, official government statistics uh, tell us what's going on. Uh, we publish our work on the Hiring Lab blog, uh, which is accessible to everyone at uh, hiringlab.org. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, and we also partner with uh, lots of other teams at Indeed, including marketing, sales, uh, client success, and PR, to communicate our research to employers, to job seekers, to journalists, uh, and to other economists. Let's let's back up a little bit and and just talk a little about 
how you got here. You didn't start out your career as an economist. So can you talk a little bit about how you developed your career and how you ended up where you are today? Uh, sure. Um, it's uh, correct that I didn't start out as an economist. Uh, my first degree was actually in business. Um, I grew up in Poland uh, where the jobs market is quite rigid. So when I was deciding what to study, I uh, wanted to go for something practical that uh, would be sure to get me a job. Uh, so I went to the US. Um, I got that business degree. Um, and with that degree, I spent uh, over 10 years uh, working in investment banking in New York uh, and in London, which was kind of act one of my career. Uh, it wasn't necessarily my passion, uh, but it was a great professional experience. Um, I got to work with really smart people. Um, I got to travel. Uh, as part of uh, my work, I uh, focused on Latin America for a few years. So I got to uh, see clients in Mexico, Chile, Brazil, uh, sometimes speak to them in their language, understand how they do business in those countries. And I think that has helped me understand uh, the nitty gritty of the global economy a bit better. Um, but at some point, I did want to do something deeper, a bit more analytical. So I decided to completely switch careers. Uh, I went back to grad school. And after six long years, I got a PhD in economics. Uh, and now I can finally call myself uh, an economist. Um, that has been a fantastic experience. Uh, during the PhD, I did lots of new things, including teaching students, which I really enjoyed. And uh, now it indeed, uh, I'm lucky to have a job that has both an analytical component and an educational component. So I really enjoy doing both things, analyzing the economy, but also communicating to people, explaining to them what's going on in the jobs market. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a really big part of my job. Uh, so, so it's really kind of like an act two in, in my career. And I still often get a chance to speak to university students at various events. And uh, my advice to them is always to think about their careers as a series of acts or experiences that they can uh, switch to over the years. We're going to dive pretty quickly into what's happened over the last eight months. But, um, you know, when, when you look at what you do, so head of research for EMEA Australia, talk, just talk a little bit about some of the trends that you were seeing in the labor markets prior to, to covid and what were some some of the signals that you had seen around what how 2020 might be shaping up? Uh, sure. The, I think the time prior to the pandemic feels like it was a really, really long time ago. Um, but if we do rewind back to uh, 2019 and, and the beginning of uh, 2020, um, we were in a very strong uh, labor market. Uh, in many countries, we were seeing record low unemployment rates uh, or unemployment rates near record lows. Um, there were some signs that the jobs boom was already starting to slow. Uh, so for instance, in the US, job growth in 2019 was slower than it was in 2018 and 2017. Um, in the UK as well, uh, employment seemed to be peaking, but it was really hard to see any specific signs of a crisis or signs of a recession. So uh, some of the things we were worried about then was, uh, you know, precisely whether employment is plateauing, uh, wage growth uh, was relatively weak, but overall those were pretty good times for the vast majority of the workforce. Um, and a global pandemic has always been, in a way, on the list of uh, potential things that could trigger a global crisis, but of course, we had no idea that COVID-19 would happen uh, when it did. 
Um, and so when it did, it was a very, very rapid switch from thinking about uh, what's happening to wages or whether employment is speaking to really trying to understand immediately the impact of this uh, you know, very fast happening crisis. So then we, you know, we turned to, to February, March as things were starting to, to unfold and, and outside of Asia, Europe was the, the, the next place where uh, COVID took hold. Talk a little bit about that, that first wave and, and what the impact on the European uh, economy looked like. Yeah, Europe was uh, was one of the first places uh, outside Asia uh, to be affected. Um, we saw infections start spreading in northern Italy, and then that had a knock-on effect on um, other European countries as well. Um, so uh, thinking back to March, uh, most countries in Europe went into lockdown, um, shutting down um various sectors of the economy, including non-essential retail, uh, travel, uh, restaurants, uh, other face-to-face services. Uh, people were, were asked to work from home if they could. And if they couldn't, uh, most governments ass- essentially wrote them checks uh, to stay at home um, and uh, maintain at least part of their income. Um, so it was a very sudden change. And in the hiring lab, we uh, switched very quickly to trying to understand uh, that developing crisis. Um, We were actually lucky to have access to all the Indeed data that I mentioned earlier, uh, which showed the impact almost immediately. Um, So the main effect that we saw right away um, in Europe was a big hit to uh, job postings, uh, to the volume of job postings. Um, And that was really important because there was really very little other data available showing the economic impact of COVID-19 and the lockdowns and social distancing at the time. Um, and uh, job postings are really important because they're a kind of barometer of the economy and of the labor market. Um, and uh, looking at the hit to job postings really helped us frame uh, the impact of uh, those lockdowns on the economy. Um, one really interesting thing that happened was that uh, the impact on the labor market in different countries in Europe was very different. And that was a bit surprising because on the one hand, it was kind of a global crisis uh, caused by the same event, a global pandemic, uh, you know, a virus that doesn't know borders. Um, and it had similar implications everywhere for things like social distancing and travel and working from home. Um, but we saw that, for instance, in the initial weeks of the pandemic, uh, UK uh, job posting volumes were hit 60%. So they're down 60%, which is a massive number. Uh, whereas in Germany, that hit was only 25%. Uh, now, I say only in quotation marks because that's still uh, a huge uh, negative impact, but obviously much smaller than, than we saw in the UK, for instance. And we learned very quickly that the labor market impact of the crisis um, in Europe and, and around the world really depended very much uh, also on um, the structure of each economy. Uh, so kind of pre-existing structures that made uh, different countries more vulnerable than others. Uh, and also on the government response uh, to the crisis, uh, which differed quite a lot. So, for instance, we found that uh, in terms of pre-existing economic structures in countries where working from home was more feasible even before the pandemic, like Germany or the Netherlands, the hit to the labor market was much smaller than in countries which were very heavily based on face-to-face service jobs where working from home wasn't as feasible. Uh, So countries like the UK, Ireland, Canada, Australia, uh, those countries were uh, much more heavily affected. 
the US was uh, more or less in the middle, uh, actually, among these countries. So overall, uh, the first wave, just to summarize, huge uh, impact on the labor market and on economic output as, as sectors of, you know, entire sectors of the economy were essentially shut down. Um, at the same time, governments responded very quickly with support for employees, for businesses to preserve jobs and to preserve incomes. And it largely worked. So job losses in Europe in the first wave of the pandemic were actually quite small. So um, can you talk a little bit about actually the the difference in the government response? Um, and obviously it, it has a significant impact. How different was the U.S. response to the various European approaches? Uh, very different. Uh, so from a labor market perspective, um, essentially, European governments uh, just deferred the impact of the crisis by uh, paying people salaries. Um, and that way they kept them formally in their jobs, even though they weren't working. Whereas in the US uh, and Canada also, to some extent, uh, gov- the governments relied mainly on supporting people who lost their jobs and became unemployed. Um, and therefore, were many of them received unemployment benefits, which became more generous. So in the US, for instance, more than 20 million jobs were lost uh, at the outset, and those workers then received those more generous uh, unemployment benefits, or at least uh, many of them did. Whereas in Europe, tens of millions of people kept their jobs but were furloughed. So basically just not working or working reduced hours um, and getting some proportion of their salary paid by the government. Um, we saw we can see the results in the unemployment rate trends. So in the US, unemployment went up a lot, whereas in Europe, unemployment was pretty much flat. Now, that doesn't actually mean that the European approach was necessarily better than the US approach, because when the US economy reopened, it also started to recover faster because uh, employers you know, who are trying to hire for you know, restaurants, uh, bars, uh, shops, uh, were hiring people from unemployment. Whereas in Europe, those employers were just recalling people from furlough, not necessarily hiring new workers. Um, and we saw that uh, right away on Indeed as well. So we, we saw those uh, trends in recovery, job volumes really uh, recovering pretty briskly in the US uh, and remaining fairly stagnant, stagnant or recovering quite slowly uh, in many European countries. Uh, so both US and European approaches were valid, um, but they did affect people in different ways and at different times. And I think the jury is still out about which of these approaches will end up being better because unemployment is actually starting to rise in Europe right now. Um, for instance, uh, you know, young people who are entering the labor market are facing fewer opportunities because that recovery in hiring has been a bit stagnant. Whereas in the US, we're seeing overall unemployment uh, come down. So uh, who knows, maybe we'll end up eventually uh, in a similar place when the dust clears. So in, in terms of dust clearing, we obviously don't know when that will be. So it's hard to say where in this process we are, other than to say that we're, we're deep into it right now. So we're, we're certainly beyond the first wave. What's uh, going on in Europe right now and how is, how is Europe coping with the crisis at this moment? Well, it's not coping particularly well. Um, as you say, we're well into the second wave uh, of the pandemic um, and we're seeing infection rates growing all over Europe. Um, And as a result of that, we're also seeing many governments putting in place new restrictions. So uh, just in the last week, we saw uh, new lockdowns announced in places like France, Germany and the UK. Um, Ireland, where indeed has a lot of employees, has actually been in a pretty tight lockdown for a couple of weeks now. 
Um, and we're seeing a similar pattern in other European countries. So um, each country is slightly different um, in terms of the rules, but the general direction of travel is the same, which is uh, more restrictions on businesses, on people's ability to socialize uh, and travel. Um, and uh, again, the, the timely nature of Indeed's data is actually see, helping us see um, some of that effect on the job market already. So for instance, in the UK, um, the summer was quite good for the food and hospitality sector because the government essentially gave people money to spend on uh, food and drink in August. Uh, but once that ended and once um, we started talking about new restrictions, uh, job postings in food and hospitality started to come down again, uh, really diverging from uh, some of the winning sectors like uh, driving, loading and stocking, which are uh, really, really crucial and even more crucial when restrictions are tightened. Uh, we, we're seeing a similar pattern in France. So we're seeing this kind of diverging uh, labor market now where the recovery is slowing. Uh, some sectors are winning, but some sectors are being heavily affected uh, once again. We're also seeing um, a lot of changes on the job seeker side, which is uh, particularly interesting uh, to Indeed's clients. They always ask about what job seekers are doing uh, when we speak to them. And for instance, uh, we're starting to see a kind of second wave of searches for remote work in many European markets, uh, especially in countries like Germany or Ireland. There's this renewed interest in working from home. Uh, people are typing those keywords into uh, Indeed. Uh, so that shows, again, a very quick reaction to uh, the lockdown. Um, I think in terms of the future, uh, I will be very wary of uh, predicting where European economies uh, will go. And you alluded to that in your question. Uh, so much really depends on the virus. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. We're really not going to see uh, sustained recovery until we're safe uh, from the virus. Uh, but if what we're seeing right now continues and we do see these temporary lockdowns and the easing of restrictions and uh, renewed lockdowns, then we might be seeing you know, a fairly flat trend in the labor market or a kind of up and down uh, type recovery. And, and that means the recovery is likely to be long and slow and uh, many people uh, will probably be on the sidelines of the jobs market uh, for quite some time. So one of the common themes and, and something we've explored um, in, in various different episodes of, of this podcast is the, the disparate impact on the communities that are most vulnerable. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the economic data um, demonstrates about the, the impact on people? Uh, sure. We, we do see... Um already in the employment and unemployment rates that um, inequality is growing uh, within many countries um, with uh, especially low paid uh, workers, uh, young people uh, and people in ethnic minority groups uh, being most likely to lose their jobs and either be unemployed or drop out of the labor force. Um, that really reflects uh, our economic structures and the reality of the face-to-face -face service jobs that people in these groups uh, were most likely to perform before the crisis, um, and the contrast with uh, higher earners who are more likely to be in uh, sectors that haven't been shut down um, and are more likely, to, more likely to be able to work from home and, and weather the pandemic uh, that way. Um, 
We're also seeing that uh, the experience of the crisis is different in different places. Uh, so, for instance, in our data, we can drill into specific locations and look at how different cities and towns are performing in terms of the labor market recovery. Um, and we see, for instance, that bigger cities are suffering more. Um, and that's a pattern that we actually see across uh, most of our major markets. Um, that seems to be related to a few things. So on the one hand, um, there is um, a greater concentration of jobs in kind of knowledge intensive uh, sectors in cities. There is more uh, work from home as a result of that and uh, more work from home, uh, less tourism and business travel. Uh, means that uh, traffic and footfall in city centers uh, is very slow to recover, uh, especially in big cities. Um, and as a result, there is a, a pretty uh, pretty big hit to uh, jobs in those sectors that serve uh, people in person in big cities. Uh, whereas some of the uh, smaller places are actually uh, uh, recovering um, uh, relatively well. Uh, so. Uh, that's kind of another way in which we see from economic data that uh, you know different people in different places can be impacted in very different ways, um, especially those who are uh, most uh, vulnerable. So in the early days of the pandemic, one of the phrases that we heard over and over again was this idea that we're we're all in this together, although you know what you're talking about uh, demonstrates that it it doesn't necessarily hold up to, what we've experienced. Can you can you talk a little bit about that concept? Uh, yeah, it's certainly something that we've heard quite a lot, especially at the beginning uh, of the crisis. But as this thing drags on um, and takes longer than what most people had expected, um, it's not exactly true uh, everywhere and, and at all times. Um, I think on the positive side, um, as you mentioned by alluding to the previous uh, Here to Help episodes, we have seen more discussion of the unequal impact of the crisis. Um, and I think that's a really good sign because acknowledging the problem is the, the first step towards uh, actually trying to solve it. Um, we've also seen amazing displays of solidarity at the individual level, at, at the societal level. Um, and essentially, we've been shutting down entire economies or entire sectors of economies to protect the most vulnerable. And I think um, that's, that is a great example of the solidarity that societies have shown. Um, we've also seen uh, some solidarity across countries. Uh, so for instance, in the European Union, uh, there's been a recovery uh, package with money for all member states. Uh, except the UK, which is leaving uh, the European Union. Uh, and that's uh, been also another um, good sign. But um, are we really all in this together? Um, you know, I think it's not completely true because there has also been a lot of discord. Uh, so, for instance, uh, different countries have been following different public health policies, uh, perhaps not learning as much from each other as they should have. Uh, we've also seen um, some tension within countries between national governments and local, regional or state uh, governments. And party politics is still very much alive, despite the fact that we are uh, all in, you know, all in this together uh, and we're in a global crisis. Um, we've also seen global poverty rising because uh, many of the poor countries uh, don't have the funds or the policies to deal with the virus. Um, and as, as we've just uh, said, even within countries, the impact has been quite unequal. So um, I think for us to feel like we're all in this together, we really need to 
do something uh, about these inequalities that we're talking about. Um, personally, I, I'm definitely very happy to be working for a company that I think is doing something about um, uh, these inequalities. Uh, on the one hand, we inform people about what's going on in the market so they can make better decisions in these challenging times. Um, on the other hand, our partnerships with the likes of Goodwill and other organizations we're speaking to uh, around the world are also an example of our focus on helping those who are most vulnerable and uh, helping people uh, get jobs when it's really, really hard to get a job uh, in some cases. Um, and I think one of the takeaways uh, for us all from this lived experience of the crisis is that we need to keep on thinking about this and we need to keep on asking questions about who needs help um, and how we want the economy and society to actually look like uh, when the dust clears and the pandemic is over. I think you know one of the, the clear themes here is that when, when things are good and when economies are, are booming, it's, it's very easy to, um, to miss some of the, the structural issues and, and what we're experiencing right now is, is a, you know, a very real stress test of the system and, and under stress, you start to learn things that you know you might not have been able to see. So, what what are some of the lessons that we can take of this view of the labor market as a result of the pandemic? I think we basically found out that we cannot get the economy back on track until the virus is under control. And I think one of the big lessons uh, from that is that health and the economy are very closely linked. Now, that is actually a lesson that. Uh, development economists, for instance, have known for a very long time. Um, economists who study developing countries um, have always um, flagged that uh, for a country to perform well economically, people need access to health, uh, to basic nutrition so that they can work and get an income. Um, otherwise, they're stuck in poverty if there is no safety net. Uh, but the crisis has really highlighted how important that is in the rich world, too. Um, Going back to the positive impact of the pandemic, I think you know we have seen greater attention paid in the media and in academic conversations uh, to this topic um, and to people who are vulnerable. Uh, but the big question remains whether that's just lip service or whether we'll, we'll actually do something about it. Um, many of the people who we think are uh, now really key workers who are essential uh, to the functioning of our society are actually very low paid. Uh, so those are people uh, who work in uh, restaurants, in uh, deliveries, uh, in healthcare and social care. Um, and actually our research in the hiring lab, both in the US and in the UK, found early on in the pandemic that advertised pay for these essential roles uh, didn't really grow massively, even though we were praising uh, people who were in these jobs. And of course, there are some economic drivers for that. Um, you know, even though there was demand for workers in those roles, a lot of these jobs have relatively low barriers to entry. They don't require uh, very high qualifications. There are lots of people willing to do them, those jobs despite the risks. And perhaps that's what, you know, kept uh, wages relatively low. Uh, but it is a it is a big question going forward um, and a decision that we'll have to make as um, a society. So I think one lesson from this uh, link between health and the economy is that, um, you know, are we really going to invest in, in health systems uh, around the world going forward? Um, are we going to make um, health care and social care careers more attractive to people? 
Um, and it's not just about pay. It's also about, you know, other working conditions uh, like uh, stability, like uh, reducing risks. Um, and also, are we going to train enough workers uh, to meet the needs of our society as it ages and as, as it becomes more exposed to future pandemics? So depending on how each society answers uh, these questions, I think that may have an impact on the economy and on politics in the future. So one of the interesting uh, challenges here is we have this crisis that we're in the middle of right now, and we have to make decisions right now to to change the tide. And then a lot of what you're talking about are, are really very, very long-term issues. And so what is the balance between the short and the long-term, and, and how, are, how are you looking at that right now? I think we need to address uh, both. Um, certainly, some of the things I mentioned are quite quite long-term, um, but uh, we're also seeing that the crisis is lasting longer than most people had expected uh, at the beginning. Um, and uh, the economy will take a while to recover. So um, in the near term, if we continue to see more infections and tighter restrictions on economic activity um, and people uh, socially distancing um, also uh, on a voluntary basis, um, that will continue to affect how people spend their money. That will affect revenues of various businesses. Um, that means uh, the economy uh, may be below its level of pre-pandemic activity for a while. So I think in the near term, it is um, quite important for governments to continue to support businesses and households. Um, and they can do that in lots of different ways. So in Europe, for instance, uh, many governments have said that they will extend um a lot of the furlough schemes and grants for businesses um, that have been in place this year. So that's the case in the UK and France and Germany, for instance. Um, and I think that's important because uh, we want uh, businesses and, and people's livelihoods not to be permanently damaged uh, by the pandemic uh, while we wait for the recovery. Um, because if that happens, then the recovery will probably be even slower. So I think um, I think we do have to address these near-term uh, challenges. Certainly, um, you know, governments are overwhelmed with what's going on, but we can't take our eye, eyes off these uh, sort of longer-term challenges either. So one of the big questions is, um, you know, what is the role that our education system can play in helping to build a more equitable recovery? I think that's a good question. Uh, I think that the education system is... Um, is also an investment in the economy, just like um, healthcare is. We, from an the perspective of education, I think we do need to keep on growing the pipeline of uh, people with the skills and qualifications and interests uh, that are needed for all these essential jobs uh, that we've been talking about. So for instance, nursing or home care. Um, and I think we need to pay special attention to attracting people to, to those careers because they are expected to grow both in the near term because of COVID, but also in the longer term because of trends like, um, you know, aging societies in, in a lot of uh, the rich countries around the world. Um, we do see on Indeed that uh, demand for people in healthcare roles is quite, um, uh, quite solid. But we also see that when we measure, uh, for instance, the number of clicks that these uh, job postings uh, receive, um, they're still below 
lots of other jobs. They're still below average. And that suggests that uh, we do need to uh, either train more people for these roles or attract them in, in various ways to these roles uh, so that these jobs can be filled a bit more easily and, and society can actually benefit uh, from those services. Uh, one thing that uh, recent surveys found in the UK is that uh, job seekers are still not very well aware of uh, the sectors where there are job opportunities in this crisis. Uh, so for instance, many people from the hardest hit sectors like food and hospitality um, still say when asked that they would be most interested in applying to food and hospitality jobs, uh, which are few and far between. Um, and so while we have seen uh, those job seekers click increasingly on the areas where we do see growth. Um, I think uh, there's probably more we can do in terms of uh, informing people about uh, these trends and informing them about uh, what's going on in the job market. Uh, that's what we try to do uh, at Indeed in the hiring lab and, and on other teams. Um, and hopefully that's a way we can contribute uh, to give people some steer uh, during this pandemic. So to... Wrap things up. Uh, one of the things that we like to end on is just sort of looking towards the future. And in particular, obviously, the last eight months have been extraordinarily challenging for for everyone uh, around the world. Um, but it's also been an opportunity to look at things from a new perspective. And so my question is, are, is there anything over the last eight months that has given you some optimism for the future? Uh, certainly. And um, I think um, that as an economist, I, I can often fall into the trap of, you know, talking about data, uh, which right now isn't looking uh, that great. And uh, and I can uh, often sound uh, pessimistic, but I think that one of the things that really does give me a lot of uh, optimism uh, for the future is the fact that um, spending more time uh, with family and, and keeping in touch uh with people um, during the pandemic um, has really shown me kind of how close you can feel to other people despite all these barriers, despite all the social distancing and despite uh, all the rules. Um, you can really engage in uh, acts of kindness and solidarity. Uh, many people have been uh, helping out older family members, uh, neighbors. Um, I think that's really something that's been amazing and it's definitely one of the things that's making me hopeful uh, for the future, despite uh, all this grim uh, near-term data. Uh, I think we will recover uh, from all this. Um, we are making a big sacrifice uh, right now as a society. We are protecting those who are vulnerable, including uh, older people. Um, and that does give me hope that we will remember uh, these lessons and I will remember the importance of supporting people who are vulnerable, uh, including people who are vulnerable to economic shocks, not just uh, health uh, shocks, uh, both during and uh, and after the pandemic. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and Pavel, thank you so much for the conversation today, for sharing your experience and your insights. And uh, thank you for everything that you do to help people around the world understand the global economy a little better and help more people get jobs. Thanks for an interesting conversation.